So we've been learning about John the Baptist, whose job it was to prepare the way for Jesus. And the question today is this, what if the way does not go your way? We pick things up in Matthew 11, verse 2. You may wish to turn to it. Matthew 11, 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we find another? Dear Jesus, if you are the one that I told everyone that you are, then my present estate, that is to say Herod's big house, is a strange place for me to be. I thought the Christ would come and set the captives free, not get them locked up. And as for those who locked me up, there's an American phrase I'd like to see done to them. Not exactly churchy, but I do believe if we were to put it into British idiom, it might just be clean enough for the pulpit. John expects Jesus, colloquially speaking at least, to open up a tin of smacked bottom on the bad guys. It does come in tins over there, not cans, by the way. And from his dungeon, his jail cell, John perceives that something has gone very wrong. He even sounds just a little bit disappointed to me when he says, shall we look for another? Shall we find another Messiah? Patiently, Jesus sends the reply. Verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. But if you look really carefully, and this is why I love scripture opening. If you look really carefully at verse 2. See that it says, when John heard in prison about the deeds. Which means that John knew all of this when he complained. He's not learning anything new with this response from Jesus. John's beef is not that Jesus cannot do powerful signs. It is that he can do them, and he's not done them for him. He's not done them John's way. So if all you have is this gospel lesson, and you're trying to understand why this response from Jesus would be of any comfort to John at all, I think the best you can come up with is either Jesus means, look, John, be patient. I'll get round to you, but I'm a bit busy right now. Or worse, John, settle. Settle for part of your hope being fulfilled. Settle for a sort of limited Messiah. I'm really good with legs, I'm not so good with jail cells. I can heal, but I cannot set you free. Will that do? And yet, I don't think either of those things are true. And so, therefore, something in Jesus' reply to John, merely reiterating that which he already knew, seems to change everything for him. And what is that? In the TV show, The Chosen, in fact, in the very episode that will be released tonight at 7 p.m., which I've already seen, because if you drove to Ohio, you could see it. Uh, they suggest that uh, John gets it straight away. And I think that the scholars behind that TV show have done a good job with this. I think as soon as John gets this reply, telling him that which he already knew, I think something changes in his heart. And uh, it doesn't say so exactly in the text. But if you glance ahead to verse 11, Jesus does describe John as the greatest prophet ever. It's a nice thing to say, isn't it? And specifically in verse 10, 
He describes John as the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. And this is fascinating because the message that Jesus sends to John is practically a direct quote from that very book. Now, those of you who are here for the series from the book of Joel will know exactly what to do when you see a thing like this written down. We spent the whole of the fall as a church learning how to read prophecy as well as John could. And we saw two things with all of these Old Testament prophecies. One, how a prophecy will often use highly symbolic language or, or themes from Scripture to situate the prophecy within the broader context of the greater story of God. And two, we saw how one single prophecy can often be fulfilled multiple different times in multiple different ways, immediately, intermediately, and ultimately. So let's turn to Isaiah 35, and let's read it like John would have read it. And then we might just see what Jesus means when he quotes it. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the, tears of the, deaf un, uh, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So really basic, first layer of understanding here, really simple. Isaiah says, when you see these things, you will know that the Messiah has come. And Jesus says to John, now that you can see these things, you know that the Messiah has come. It really, really is that simple. But remember, a prophecy will often use highly symbolic language or themes in Scripture to situate the prophecy within the greater context of the greater story of God. And because John would know Isaiah front to back and backwards and off by heart, he would also know what it says in verse 1. Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. John, of all people, knows that wilderness is a major Old Testament theme. And the wilderness is always a time of waiting and stripping away. And it's in the wilderness often that with absolutely nothing at all to your name, you learn to either rely on God or the schemes of your own mind. Which path will you take? That's what the wilderness is all about. The wilderness is always going to take you in one of two directions. It's not an end point. The wilderness is a fork in the road. Which way will you go when you're in it? And uh, Isaiah says, when the Messiah comes, he will turn the wilderness into Eden. Another major Old Testament theme. He'll turn it into the promised land. He'll turn it into heaven on earth. There will be proximity and provision from God, abundance and joy. This is a really great message to John. Because not so long ago, John was in the literal wilderness, singing his guts out. People were flocking to him to hear this good news. His was a lone voice. It was a rugged voice. It was a powerful voice crying out in the wilderness, literally, prepare the way. That was John the Baptist's job. Now, 
he's in a very different kind of wilderness. The emptiness of a prison cell. And Jesus asks him with this little message, can you still find your voice? Or can you only worship when things are going your way? It's a tough thing to hear. And then as John walks his mind through Isaiah 35 and asks himself, is there anything else in the context of this message that might give me hope? I'm sure he could almost hear Jesus speaking to him the words of verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Some of us can feel our spiritual legs giving way. Perhaps of some captivity that we're in has, has worn us down. Could be a relationship that's toxic. Could be a bum deal that you've made. Could be a job that you hate or wish you had. It could be a sin that you do and you kind of think you're free from it, but it's like being on a bungee cord and it drags you back inside. It could be a loss that you've had to bear, an untimely death, a bereavement of some kind. And because Jesus has not looked like we wanted him to look and he's not done what we wanted him to do and his way was not our way, we are anxious, we're afraid, our faith is on the line and we are tempted to fall back in the moments like this on our own smarts. Looking for another Messiah, perhaps, who will do things our way. So Isaiah says, behold, which is one of my favorite words in scripture. It means, hey, yins, take careful notes. It's a yelling word, as I read it at least. Your God will come with vengeance. This is promissory language and justice language, major themes of scripture. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Judgment for the bad guys is still on the way. The tin will still be opened up or the can, depending which jurisdiction you are in, and freedom for the chosen as well. Verse 8, a highway shall be there in the wilderness, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The image is of a causeway, an elevated road, lifted up above the wilderness, above the fray. It's a wonderful image. I love giving directions to Kat. Sometimes she'll call me when she's just a little bit lost. uh, I once made the mistake in a situation like this of saying, calm down. (laughs) I don't say that anymore. (laughs) I say now, I've learned, you see, I'm a husband of many years. I say, okay, love, tell me where you are. What road are you on? She says something like, the Raymond P. Schaefer Highway. I say, <laughs> interesting, have you got anything else? Uh, uh, she says, I, I see a sign that says Catch Basin, <laughs> sponsored by Rotary. I'm like, okay, love, that's really good. Um, but I need a little bit more detail than that. Is there maybe a road number uh, or, or an intersection of two streets, perhaps, that, that I could look up? She says, a deaf child lives here. And the irony is I actually knew where that one was. It's, it's around the back of Millvale. I knew that one. And uh, uh, for those of you who are directionally challenged, shall we say, Isaiah describes for us a really clear road. You cannot miss it. 
Uh, ben said like PA Route 28. They come with numbers uh, through the hills of Tarentum and the valleys of Etna all leveled out. There is a clear road away. Verse 9 says, there's no lions and beasts, no roadworks and confusing signs, no one in a rusted out 1500 ram overloaded, weaving through the traffic like a Ferrari. Why don't they race those things in F1, I wonder? We are being told that this road is clear and this road is safe. What good news. And God's great, mystical, soteriological, eschatological timing. One day, the hope of Scripture is that Route 28 will be finished. I got an amen last night when I said that. And verse 8, the unclean shall not pass over it. Not everyone can use this road. It shall belong, I say brackets, only to those who walk on the way. The great news is that your walk on the way is entirely a walk of grace. Walking The way of Jesus is not about being a good Christian and and stopping to pay all the tolls along the road. Those were all paid for when you started. It's not even walking the way of Jesus about knowing where you are. Even if you are weak, disappointed, anxious, afraid, and confused, and lost, Isaiah says, even if they are fools, they will not go astray. Normally the fool in Scripture... Or as the old scholar Alec Mottier used to translate it, the gormless is a figure of ridicule and fecklessness in Scripture. My teacher used to call me gormless. Mrs. Hill used to say, Alexander, you look gormless. Close your mouth. (laughs) Mum and dad watching back home can well picture her saying these things. I take great comfort in this verse to the gormless. Something about that label stuck. I just feel the Lord redeeming it. John's wobble of faith will not be held against him. Neither will yours. In fact, from a place of complete and utter destitution, a wilderness, disappointment, confusion, anxiety, fear and doubt, the promise of Isaiah is that God will come to you where you are. Now look at verse 2. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. From which vantage point will they see it? Where will they be when they see all of this? Exactly where they are is the answer. That's where they see it. They didn't break out and go looking for Jesus and work their way towards him and then see the majesty. Rather, he came into them exactly where they were. He met them where they were. And if they see Jesus from where they are, That means that he himself must first dwell there with them, in their midst. Make his home in the wilderness and the squalor of your cell. He will take our situations on before he breaks us out. Jesus does not glide over suffering. He comes into it. Jesus eats prison food. He wears prison clothes. Jesus lives under the sentence of death. It's a messianic twist that all the great scholars of the prophets had somehow conspired to miss. 
that the healer, the redeemer, and the judge would be broken, indebted, and judged in our place. In the early 2000s, there was a TV show called Prison Break. I don't know if any of you watched that show. And uh, one of the main characters was wrongly put inside. And so his brother, who happened to be an architect, had all the blueprints to the prison tattooed all over his body. And then he gets himself arrested and found guilty. And then finally, from inside the same cell as his brother, I hope it's not giving too much away, you get the clues in the name of the show, he breaks his brother free. Inside prison. John receives good news that Christ is coming in for him. In verses 9 and 10, God calls his people the redeemed and the ransomed. Both of these words are actually derived from the Hebrew word for the next of kin. Our brother is on the way. Our father is on the way. Our closest relative is coming into our wilderness and into the confines of our prison cell. But remember what John knew, what students of the book of Joel know. Every prophecy can be fulfilled more than one time, both in an immediate, maybe an intermediate, certainly an ultimate sense. And so in verse 10, Isaiah uses another key word to remind us of this feature of prophecy, this word everlasting, reminding us that whatever it is that's being promised right then and there, is going to be amplified and magnified and fulfilled in a far greater way at the end of all things. John, Jesus says with this little letter that he sends, you've got to think bigger than yourself, bigger than your nation, bigger even than your time frame. The arrival of the Messiah, which is indeed now, you know that because of the signs, will also have eternal consequences, not just for you, but for the whole of creation. Whatever literal healing and freedom and judging might occur right here, right now, is merely a snapshot of something far greater to take place and is still along the way. The cost that John is paying for preparing the way is like the cost that Jesus is going to pay for him. That's just the way of Christ sometimes. You want to look like him. Look where he ended up. If you point to Jesus, it will bring you into conflict with the powers of this world and the principalities of the unseen realm. It might get you locked up. And yet at the same time, no power of hell or scheme of man changes a thing about your freedom in Christ. All that theology to a man who you must remember needed it. Because he's enslaved, isn't he? Just for a moment. Feels like giving up on his faith. He's disappointed with God. Isn't it great that God is not disappointed with you? Isn't it great that he loves you? We finish with Matthew 11, verse 6. Back to the question of the day. What if the way does not go your way? Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me.